We all need food to survive, but the way we produce and consume today is not sustainable nor healthy. We looked to science to find the answer, but got surprised. There was no clear answer on what a healthy diet from a sustainable food production really looked like. This is why EAT gathered 37 of the world's best scientists to get a definitive answer on what a healthy and sustainable diet looks like for all. Their joint result is the EAT Lancet Commission, not just a scientific report. It is a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future. It will have fundamental implications for how we produce, distribute, consume and waste food. Nothing will ever be the same again. The good news is that it's possible to feed healthy and sustainable food to a growing population. But to get there, you could argue that we'll have to question everything we know about food and learn how to eat again. I'm Dr Hazel Wallace from The Food Medic. And I'm Dr Sandro DeMeo, CEO of EAT. From the studio in London, we aim to translate the Eat Lancet findings into everyday actions to you, our global audience. This is the Let's Rethink Food podcast, a collaboration between Eat and The Food Medic. Food production is now the single largest source of environmental degradation and impact on the Earth system. Our food system needs a safe operating space to conserve what's left of biodiversity, oceans, and of course our land. In fact, we need to save half the Earth in order to save our ecosystems. Marine biologist Christine Figner will join us for the needed conversation about our oceans. Jeremy Oppenheim will roll up his sleeves and explain why we need a full-scale systems change to reverse the threats facing the planet. And Dr Sonia Vermeulen will tell us how and why the diversity on our plate reflects the biodiversity across the Earth. So, Sonia, as a commissioner from the Eat Lancet report, can you take us through some of the findings, headline findings, that might see us reshape agriculture in the future? Well, in the report, we talk about uh, closing yield gaps by 75%. Now, what that means is that across the world, some farmers are producing much higher yields than others. And we feel that if we could close that gap, um, bring the smaller producers, the lower producers up to their true potential, we could solve a lot of the problems and we could stop expanding farms into natural forest and other habitats. I think we need to unpick this a little bit. So, for example, let's think about um, dairy farming systems. So if you look at a cow in Denmark compared to a cow in Chad or Mali, it produces 100 times more milk for the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions. It's 100 times more efficient. It's really quite remarkable. So the obvious thing is we think, well, we can help those farmers in Chad and Mali make their cows that productive They'll obviously earn more money from that. There'll be more milk in the country. It would be a wonderful win-win-win. But think about the differences between those two countries. If you took that Danish cow and put it into the middle of Chad or Mali, it, well, it wouldn't be producing much milk probably. It may not even survive a month. Mm. And we just need to really look at those systems. Farmers are keeping small cows there that can travel long distances, go without water, be highly resilient to all kinds of diseases and climatic change thrown at them and still be something to sell at the end of the day. So we do need to bear in mind the very different 
farming systems out there and the kind of values that farmers have as we drive towards closing these yield gaps. Mm. But those are astounding gaps between the potential and what is being realised at the moment. And when we talk about a world where 820-odd million people are hungry, particularly in some of the more vulnerable, poorer parts of the world, that, that could go a long way to pulling those people, as you say, out of poverty, but also feeding many more that are currently going hungry. I mean, what do we need to be doing to close these critical gaps? Well, there are all kinds of things that need to happen. So you think about what actually could could happen on a farm. Some farmers do need to be using a lot more fertiliser. If you look between China and the US, top fertiliser users compared to African farmers, again, that's a hundredfold difference Mm. in how much fertiliser they're putting on their farms. Obviously, the Chinese and US could probably do with putting on a lot less. Africans could do more. But it's not just that technical stuff. It's all of the systems around it. Um, The amount of information farmers are getting. Are they getting good climate forecasts? Are they able to borrow money from banks or or from the off-takers that they sell their food to? You know, there's a whole ecosystem around farming, institutional ecosystem, that we need to get right. Um, We've been struggling with this for years. Some countries have been doing really, really well. Rwanda is often held up as a great shining star of of where all of this machinery has started to work properly. So it's certainly possible. um, But at the same time, with my point about the cattle, we also need to temper our expectations in some cases. Is the challenge that we there's a lack of investment, a lack of money, or is it is it more complex than that? It's less the amount of investment as the amount of patient investment. Mm. The returns on agricultural development are wonderful because they're widely spread, they're very equitable, they lift up, you know, entire rural economies, but it happens slowly. The returns are slow. You tend to find that private capital isn't very interested. And so what we're seeing now are the emergence of more and more public-private blended models. Mm. You've worked around the world. You've worked across the African continent and throughout Asia in the public sector and also with private companies. I mean, what are some examples that you've seen of initiatives that have seen you know, successes in closing those gaps? In farming, we've seen um, people coming a long way in terms of water management. Mm. So, for example, very simple things of uh, managing the level of water in your rice helps you save on irrigation costs, also saves on emissions. Another big area is around precision fertiliser. People often think that precision fertilisers are only for the rich, best, you know, most capital-intensive farmers. But actually, in countries like Mexico and Thailand, Farmers are using little handheld devices. They can read off their crop, see exactly what's needed to be applied in terms of fertiliser and water. They never have to use too much of those very expensive inputs. Also, in terms of support, we're seeing much better use now of of big data. So, Mm. you know, doing analyses that can kind of uh, predict in advance where perhaps um, weather is going wrong, the yields might not be so good this year. And so you can advise large numbers of farmers um, in terms of upcoming climate events or diseases. Um, Colombia has really seen a lot of success with this, for example. Mm. If we bring this back to the person and the people listening at home, how does the food that we eat affect and reflect the biodiversity of the planet? Okay, so here we are in Europe, and I think most of us would think that wheat is used to make bread and barley is used to brew beer. Actually, Europeans don't realise that 
well, maybe many Europeans do, uh, but not all, that most uh, cereals grown in Europe just go straight into feeding animals. Mm. And on top of that, when we look at all of the farmland globally, actually more of it is used to feed livestock um, in pastures than for actually growing any crops. So our entire farming system is just used to kind of generate these, these livestock outputs in quite a phenomenal way. Um, something else that listeners might not be aware of is, is that there are actually 10 times, in terms of biomass, 10 times more livestock on the planet than there are wild animals. So it's really quite startling. We've just turned over our whole world system to this kind of livestock production. So if you think through how, how our food choices, you know, if we're eating dairy and meat-heavy diets, what we're doing is, is we're just maintaining that kind of rather um, monotonous world, should we say, mm. <laughs> with vast tracts of cereals being grown in monocultures to, to keep the animals um, many more livestock than wild animals and so on. If we kind of changed how we thought about it and changed what we eat, you could see that would drive changes all the way back through the farm and would be able to put much more areas back into the wild. We humans um, are a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of biomass on Earth. Um, mm. We're something like one ten thousandth, and yet we're choosing to occupy so much space wow. that we could be sharing more fairly. We learn a lot about, as, as doctors, we learn a lot about having sort of a diverse diet. It's great for the body. What you're telling us is that the same diversity in our diet, but also the diversity in the grains that we're eating and and the vegetables that we're eating, I mean, that's also an opportunity to boost or protect the biodiversity of the environments around us. Yes. First of all, obviously, if we ate more different things, we would be promoting farm systems that grew more different things instead of, for example, vast cereal monocultures. But also we could be promoting farms that used fertiliser and pesticides more wisely, a lot of the biodiversity that we really, really need is actually um, under the ground. About 20% of life is sitting in the soil and the deep substrates and mm. really generating the life support systems that, that we rely on um, every day for our, our well-being. So, yeah, there are lots of ways that through a more plant-based and more diversified diet, we could be creating a world that sustains us and, and provides space for the rest of you know, uh, <laughs> beyond humanity to, to our shared world of creatures, both mm. plants and animals and bacteria and, and fungi. <laughs> I mean, that's what has astounded us on this the journey of, the, of this podcast is realising that the food on our plate has such enormous impact, not just on the health of our bodies, the health of those around us directly and indirectly, but also, as you're saying, I mean, the health of everything we can see and even the things we can't see. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just below the soil, but it's also beneath the oceans. And uh, I want to turn to you, Christine, for a moment. You're a marine biologist and you've been recently named a 2018 Next Generation Leader by Time magazine for trying to end the age of plastics. Three years ago, you shared a heartbreaking video of a suffering turtle with a plastic straw stuck inside its nostril. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, for that particular video that I published, I happened to conduct research in Costa Rica where we were capturing turtles when we found one particular male that had something funny encrusted in its nose. And we were actually looking 
for critters that live on turtles, but that didn't look like anything that we were looking for. So I filmed the whole sequence of the extraction of the object because I use videos a lot of times in my presentations later on to show my science and what we're doing. And while we were extracting that object, it turned out to be a plastic straw that was stuck in the turtle's nose. So as a marine biologist working with marine turtles, plastics are a huge issue because they pose different threats depending which shapes and forms they come in. So my turtles can get entangled, for example, in plastic fishing line and nets. They ingest plastic objects such as bags or other pieces. And if they're lucky, they survive and might pass that particular object. But many die a very torturous death starvation, drowning, you name it, I've seen it. And in the moment where I filmed this plastic straw being in the turtle's nose, we pulled it out. And then knowing that I had it on video, it just gave me an incredible visual for all the horrific tales that I've been seeing in the past and have been telling. And in the past three years, it has turned into this incredible tool to raise awareness about plastic pollution and also to start a conversation even about plastics. Yeah, Christine, the video is amazing. It's so, it's just so heartbreaking to see. Uh, but I think, like you said, it's very important because it represents what's actually going on. And I think people need to see that. But plastic straws is just the beginning and it's just one piece of the puzzle. What can we be doing to help protect the biodiversity of the oceans in addition to trying to eliminate as much plastic and um, other pollutants that get into the ocean? Yeah, maybe to just put things a little bit into perspective, we shouldn't forget that 70% of our Earth is covered by ocean. And our ocean contains 95% of all the water. And still, we know very little about our oceans. So about the biodiversity that actually exists, we don't even have a baseline. And unfortunately, we will never even get a baseline because we have already removed things from the oceans. We don't even know what kind of impact it has in the long run. And I always think that we are treating our oceans like kind of a stepchild um, or you know, our dumpster, our personal dumpster, where we are harvesting things we haven't raised or cultivated and we don't even know how much there is of it. And then we are also just disposing of so many things in the ocean because it's out of sight and then we don't have to think about it anymore. And this has created a massive problem for a lot of marine life. So overfishing is just one issue where we humans have you know, eaten or taken more than we were supposed to. Fish stocks are decreasing everywhere. And it's still that more than 55% of the human population relies on fish protein for part of the animal protein. So that is an issue. But fishing also, of course, endangers, for example, other large animals, especially large predators, which have been diminished. We're talking about sharks, sea turtles, whales and dolphins. And we already know that by removing large predators from the food webs, it has absolute detrimental effects for the entire food web. And maybe just to give you an example from a marine turtle's perspective, so uh, leatherback turtles, which are almost extinct in the Pacific Ocean, feed mainly on jellyfish. So the jellyfish they feed on are carnivorous. They feed mainly on zooplankton and larval fish. So that means when we remove the leatherback, jellyfish populations can actually explode and 
already eat more of the larval fish than there is that we need to even replenish the stock that we're fishing out from our oceans. So definitely there is one thing about the biodiversity is to, you know, stop pollution, stop reducing or stop putting garbage into our ocean, but it's also about what we're eating and in what quantities we're eating things, mm. especially fish. Christine, I particularly want to link what you're talking about with what Sonia was talking about, because, you know, we, we think about our ocean food systems and our land-based food systems as being two separate entities. But what we often overlook is the fact that, you know, it's not just about straws and waste coming from our land-based food systems entering the oceans, but the way we produce food on land. Let's set aside the fact that we're overfishing most of our world's oceans for a moment, but the way we're producing food on land has a direct impact on the health of our oceans. And if we can actually increase the efficiency of our land-based food systems in the way that Sonia just outlined, not only would we be more efficient at producing food for our growing population, but we would actually have less, for example, runoff of those nutrients into the ocean with with enormous detrimental effects to uh, the ocean's ecosystems. I'd love to hear from you, Sonia. I mean, can you you know make those connections a bit more tangible for us? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so one of the worst things we're doing is is how we manage nitrogen. So, you know, we capture it through the Haber Bosch process, and we turn it into these fertilizers that we put on land. And then we just let it run away. Now, there are two ways that we let it run away because part of it is just the direct runoff into fresh water. We should obviously be turning that into a closed-loop system. But even if that were a closed-loop, we're still taking that nitrogen out as food into cities and um, hope nobody's eating at the moment because <laughs> the next thing we do is we all of that goes into our sewage, which then tends to end up in the kind of coastal areas where it's creating huge nitrogen overloads. Um, You'll have heard of eutrophication. Mm. Lots of nitrogen um, just takes away from biodiversity. You just end up with these lakes of of algae and nothing else can really live there. We've heard about these dead zones in the ocean. Exactly. We do need to really manage farming on land in order Mm. to help um, natural biodiversity and fisheries um, in oceans. I think there's something else I'd like to bring up as well, which is in about 2014, we we crossed the point where we actually got more fish from aquaculture, so that means farm fishing, rather than from wild fisheries. Now, aquaculture is obviously going to be big in our future, but the problem is, what are we feeding those fish on? Mm. And to date, they've been causing um, major uh, pressure on oceans because what we actually do is we feed our farmed fish caught wild fish, lots of little fish that could actually be feeding, um, as Christine's been mentioned, higher levels of carnivores and stuff in, in the natural ocean. Instead, we're taking it and feeding it to farm fish. And again, in the future, how are we going to substitute that? Mm. And so we've got a few choices there. Again, it might be from a whole bunch of food grown on land that we then put into fisheries. And so people are trying to look into more effective and sustainable long-term solutions to that. Could, could we be feeding them on some kind of algal product instead and, and doing it all very differently? Mm. So the potential of our ocean systems is huge. But as Christine says, we don't know and understand them very well and we tend to be treating them really badly. Mm. Christine, do you have anything to add to that? 
I think the issue is this interconnectedness and the disconnect that we humans have to our oceans, that we think whatever we do on land does not impact the oceans at all and in return doesn't impact our health. Mm. So I think it is important to really press the point that, you know, it is all interconnected and whatever we do on land, if it's plastics, you know, 80% of the plastic in the ocean is from land-based sources. If it's about production, so if we have any kind of fertilizer or other pesticide runoff into the ocean, it will affect what lives in the ocean and it will end up back on our plates again, right? And we will actually eat it. So that is the big circle that we're looking at. We're thrilled to have Jeremy Oppenheim now joining us. Jeremy's the co-founder of Systemic and the global director of what's called the Food and Land Use Coalition. Jeremy, tell us about land use. Many of us have never thought about land itself as a finite resource. Sandra, thank you so much for inviting me to join this. We use land in all sorts of ways. I mean, we now use more than half the land um, in the world in one form or another to support human activity, right? I mean, so let's just recognize the extent to which we are uh, influencing and shaping uh, land use across every continent and across every part of our of our world. Um, so there are very, very few parts of the world that are, you know, untouched by humans today. Somewhere in the order of 70 to 80 percent of the land that humans occupied is used for food production. Wow. Right. Um, and the other 20 is distributed between where we live, right, and uh, how we generate energy, much of which is very traditional energy. It's fuel wood used in, by very poor families, hundreds of millions of families across the world who are still living in the countryside, and they need to cut down trees and to find the basic fuel that they need for their homes and their cooking. Uh, and then there's a bit that's used for, 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 for textiles. But, you know, we, we probably have, in the last 50 years, you know, that 4 billion hectare number that we occupy, probably 50, 60 years ago was 3 billion. So we've taken an extra, you know, 25, 30% of the world of kind of land and, and put it under cultivation to support the growing requirements of, of people on the planet. How do we produce more food with fewer resources to feed this growing population? I think step one is that um, we should always remember that we either lose or waste over a third of the food that the world produces today. Mm. And so the first answer to your question, in a way, is, well, what about tackling that food loss and waste? Because if we could reduce that, we'll never completely eliminate it. But if we could cut it in half, you know, that liberates a huge amount of land. Yeah. Second, I think key driver of the, the just incredible amount of land that we're using per capita, um, almost a you know, hectare per person to, to feed ourselves kind of thing. But a lot of the land today that we have under cultivation so that 4 billion hectares that I mentioned, you know, almost half of it is for meat production. Mm. And we have choices that we will have to think very hard around over the coming decades as to whether allocating that much land to produce meat, which 
is an important part of many people's, everybody's diets, arguably. But equally, we know that it's overconsumed in many parts of the world, and we know that there are huge choices about the supply of protein. So rethinking that element of how we, if you will, what we eat and how that affects land use is, I think, going to be a really, really central debate mm. over the coming decades. But I hope we would also think very hard about producing more nutritious food and, and the right kind of food for people rather than just more food. Mm. So it's not just about what's protecting what's left. It's also about using the land that we have in a more sustainable way. That's got to be right. And, and of course, you know, what's so exciting is that we see really practical examples of this happening in different parts of the world. I mean, and, and some of the very best and most exciting examples are happening, you know, in places that you might least expect. I mean, you, you find that, you know, in Ethiopia, they are really thinking about a form of agriculture that's called agroforestry, so that they are deliberately planting trees in very large numbers to strengthen the way in which they manage their their soil and their agricultural outputs. And we're beginning to see that those communities that are planting more trees into their agricultural model are finding that they're able to retain water when it comes better in the soil and they're getting somewhat higher yields and that the food that is being produced is more nutritious. So you go to Tigray in the north of Ethiopia and you're beginning to see that idea of planting trees to strengthen agriculture becoming the way they think about good practice. And Um, so in in that way, Jeremy, it's not just about saying this plot of land is for food, this plot of land is for energy, this plot of land is for forestry, but actually by mixing those together and and taking a kind of more multi-dimensional approach, we can get more from the land and actually maybe it it ends up creating a healthier opportunity for the different types of land use. Well, you you absolutely get that. And we're seeing these mosaics grow up that create stronger, more resilient systems for producing food, but also for protecting nature at the same time. Mm. You're seeing in India the same thing, that a couple of wonderful examples when you go down to the to the south in Kerala. And that's been a very big, you know, kind of rice-growing province uh, or, or state within India. But they've been growing, you know, pretty much a monoculture of rice, crowding everything else out, you know, um, and it seemed for a while that that was pushing up yields, but it turned out to be, you know, also that the yields stagnated at a certain point. And then people began to realize that there were problems with the way in which the, the water table was operating. And so so we're now seeing, you know, the farmers there, with the support of the government, with real training, introducing more traditional, more nutritious grains alongside the rice production. And then they're combining rice production with with shrimp production and they're using a more organic approach to how to, if you will, circulate the nutrients between the grain production and the rice production and the shrimp production so that they don't need to use as much fertilizer. Mm. So we're seeing these mixed ecologies growing up that use less chemical loading, less fertilizer, less pesticide, and sort of 
working with nature mm. rather than working against it. The wonderful thing about food and this whole agenda is that it is a place where you can take action as, as an individual. Um, so I know that there are these amazing ideas about, you know, you can put a blockchain label on everything and that we're going to all walk around with our mobile phones and, and if we walk around a supermarket or whatever, we're going to, you know, use technology to suddenly create a much bigger circle of empathy with the, the wider world and we'll understand where every bit of food has come from. And I think that there's something in all of that. There's a first step before that for me, which is just to fall back in love with cooking and with real food and and to work with our families at home um, and to, to help them embrace that part of life. And what's really interesting is that in each of these episodes and nearly every expert has brought it back to food and how yeah. we need to reconnect with food and the simple act of cooking, like you've just said, Jeremy, is the first step for mm. all of us. Mm. And it's something that most of us can do. Mm. So I think that we are going to create that sense of reconnection, which I believe is at the heart of, you know, the good life, then we have to do some reinventing as well. Mm. Um, and we have to make it a, a form of living that, that frankly is one in which we're all participating, men, women, and, and families. Um, I think we need to get our kids more involved earlier on. We have to recognize the pressures in modern urban settings where convenience has such a high premium, you know, and we need to make sure that whatever approach we take to this is not one that is great for people in the, the middle and come upper income classes, but it has to work for everybody. So, Sonia, despite that, you're not a beginner and you are an expert uh, who's worked in different parts, many different parts of the world. I mean, what's working? What What are some things that you'd love to see scaled over the coming years to start to close those gaps, to feed a growing population sustainably, to ensure that we have healthy oceans for future generations, but also that we're able to safeguard our land and the soil beneath our feet. So coming from a diet's perspective, I think what we really need to do, you know, as, as you can see, can all be so alarming and overwhelming and, and scary. And what I'd like to do is just put joy back at the centre of, of eating. Um, and I think this is for all of us, rich and poor and in any country around the world. So one of the strong messages for me from the Eat Lancet Commission is, is that a diet that works for human and planetary health it does contract in some parts, but it's, it's not about hair shirts. It's about true pleasure, and it's about expanding to eat a whole bunch of new things. So, you know, the colours of the rainbow and a whole uh, set of different beans and nuts and kinds of things that you may not have tried before. And so what I really like seeing happening at the moment, and I, I think Europe, I'm afraid, is a the real leader here is is around diversifying that plate. Um, mm. Rabobank have already warned um, the, the, the kind of animal protein types of companies that within the next five years, plant-based proteins are moving to the centre of the plate and are mm. going to be taking up a large portion of the growth in the market. And so what I really like seeing is, is the consumer movements, the social movements, the chefs, but also the companies that are embracing this and looking to diversification in, in what we eat um, as the way forward. So, 
You'll see a company like Danone has moved from animal milks into plant milks. Um, Unilever and Knorr are talking about the future 50 flavours. Um, these, these are 50 plants we don't eat that much of right now, but we really could. And so they deserve um, research and they also deserve consumers giving them a chance and tasting some new things. So, yeah, I think it really does come back to the world of food production is scary, but let's also make it joyful again and, and really take pleasure in this new diversity. Yeah. And Christina, going back to you, how can we translate this to um, our seafood consumption? How can we be more conscious and sustainable consumers when it comes to the fish that we eat? Yeah, I think first of all, there is, depending on which country you are in, there are organizations that have created something like uh, seafood watches where they provide a guide of which seafood is still okay to eat, especially when it's wild caught or um, farmed. So this is a good guide to really maneuver the overwhelming options probably in the supermarket. I would always say buy local from small-scale fisheries. So if, if you live somewhere close to the coast and you have a privately owned fishing boat, not a big commercial fishing fleet, go and buy there because usually they fish still pretty sustainable compared to the big uh, to the big fleets. In general, I think you know your footprint every day, as little as for example reducing plastics that will not end up in our oceans, turn to microplastics, and then end up in our seafoods, that is actually something that we can do for our own health. Mm. So that is another way of how you can probably help yourself and the planet. And Christine, what are you excited by at the moment? You you get exposed to so many incredible initiatives, ideas like Sonia. I mean, it's amazing to see the excitement in her in her eyes as she describes this movement of sort of diversity on the plate for biodiversity across the planet. What what's what's exciting you at the moment? Yeah, I think we live in a time that is very scary and overwhelming with scenarios that are absolutely horrifying for humankind and all living beings on this planet. But to the same time, I feel there is so much locomotion that happens that engages people, especially young people, to try to make a difference. And I think the fight isn't really lost. I feel just now the urgency is becoming clearer and people really start moving. And I'm just happy that I'm in the midst of that all, that I actually feel like I might have an impact on this world. Absolutely. And I think it's really nice to wrap it up on a really positive note because we have talked about some really heavy things on the podcast, really heavy but important things. Mm. So I just want to thank Sonia and Christine from both of us for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights. It's been incredible. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Hazel, and thank you, Sandra. Thank you very much. Thank you. 